I want to look at his story. And we're going to look at it in a very difficult fashion because I think it's a very difficult story. The language is not necessarily very overt, but the story is actually quite clear. It's clearer than perhaps we've recognized in the past. It's clearer than perhaps we've ever been willing to admit before. But the story is incredibly painful. Bathsheba was going about her regular routines. She was taking a bath, something that I assume you do every day or hopefully at least once a week. That's all she was doing. She was taking a bath. The story tells us that she was taking it on the roof of her house, which sounds very odd to us. But for them, it would have been quite normal in their community. The springtime was very hot and humid. And one of the ways to get a break from that heat and that humidity during all kinds of normal routines would have been to move them to the roof, including taking a bath. Because on the roof, they could feel the breeze that might come through and offer just a bit of relief. From the squelching heat. So Bathsheba was taking a bath, as she would have done quite regularly. We also find out, it mentions it actually later in the story, but we find out that she is also walking through what are some of her uh, ritual, routine, religious practices. She had been deemed unclean. Now, if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament laws, this uncleanliness that she was wrestling with is something that surfaced about once a month. I'm not going into details. If you can't figure out what I'm talking about, come see Callie later. She'll talk to you about it. (laughs) About once a month, she would hit this place of being unclean. So she would need to walk through a procedure in order to make herself clean again. We find out that this is part of the process. This is part of what's happening. This is part of her routine that she's used to. This day for Bathsheba was an incredibly normal day. Until she heard a knock at the door. Story tells us that Bathsheba's husband Uriah was away at the time. Spring was the time when armies were able to go out to war. They were able to take new lands. They were able to to battle old enemies. And we're told that the army had gone and they were away at war. They were fighting the Ammonites. So every man of fighting age would have been gone together. They would have been away. They would have been out of town. Uriah was away serving his people. Uriah was away serving his king. Take that away for a minute. I need it again in a minute. Thank you. Uriah was gone. Uriah was out with the army. They're out doing battle. They're out fighting the Ammonites. We hear details woven in and out of the story. As we read the story, clearly Bathsheba and Uriah are prominent characters in the telling of this story. They're an important piece of what's going on. But we have to remember as we read the story, David is the focus. Throughout these chapters, throughout the telling of this story that we've been reading in First and Second Samuel, David is the focus of the story. The point, the Bible's intention here is to communicate to us David's story. And it weaves in and out the characters that played a significant role on his story and on his faith journey. So we see different people at different times and different stories come in for a time and then go back out. And come in and go out. And some of them come in only once and never again. Here it's Bathsheba and Uriah. But the story is about David. 
Now, to get the significance of that here and to hold on to how vital it is that we understand David as the central character, we have to also remember that David is not only the focus, he's also the most powerful character in the story. David was king. He had the right to do as he pleased. Anything he wanted, he had the right to do. He was king. That's the way being a king at that time worked. The king could do whatever the king wanted to do. Now, the Israelites, the people that David ruled over, they had incredible respect for David. They trusted him. They looked up to him. They had for years, even before he became king. But also part of what it meant for David to be king is that they did what David told them. That's part of what it meant to be king. Now, folks, this kind of power, this kind of ultimate power over the life of people requires of it an incredible amount of integrity. Because without it, it's easy to misuse this power, misuse this opportunity for selfish gain. Now, another interesting thing, another important thing to remember as we look at David and what's going on here is that although David was king, although he was ruler, although he had all the power over these people, he actually wasn't the one with the most amount of power. He was the person with the most amount of power. But because David was ruling over God's people, because he was ruling over Israel, we have to be reminded as we read the story that ultimately God was in control. God was in power. David had power. David could do as David pleased, but God was ultimately the most powerful in the story. God was ultimately the most powerful over the kingdom because even though David was king, God was king over him. Now, an amazing truth that we have to understand about the way in which God works, both then and now, is that God will let people choose to make a great mess of things. Even if God hoped for more, even if God dreamed of more, even if God designed for more to happen, God gives us the choice to make an incredible mess out of the things that God desires to do. God will let us choose to make a mess of great opportunities. God will let us choose to make a mess out of great privilege. God will choose, God will allow us, sorry, God will allow us to choose To make a mess out of great power. Now God doesn't like it. The scriptures tell us that over and over again. God doesn't like when we choose to make a mess out of what God hoped for. Out of what God designed. Out of what God dreamed. But God gives us freedom to do so. Are we all on the same page thus far? Everybody still awake out there, yeah? No. I can see you. So Bathsheba's taking a bath. Uriah's off to war. David's at the palace. The only person in the story that is actually out of position, out of where they should be, out of routine, out of the expected location that we're supposed to find them in is David. David's at the palace, but David wasn't supposed to be at the palace. David was supposed to be away at war. The very first verse, the verse Billy had up, I want it now, Billy, says, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, it gives us the...
batteries again? I'm on, but if you bring me a couple batteries, that'd be awesome. Um, from the very beginning of the story, we find out David is not where David is supposed to be because David's supposed to be away at war. But for some reason, and we're never actually told why... Up on the roof. Imagine as you think about a roof, that it not looking like our roofs, but it looking more like a porch lifted way up high on the top of the building. So it's possible that David took a nap out there for the exact same reason that Bathsheba took a bath on the roof. Because this breeze would have cooled him where inside the palace it would have been hot and humid. We don't know all of those details. We just know David took an afternoon nap and late in the afternoon he decided to look out over the kingdom. Now the palace was intentionally built higher than all of the other buildings in the kingdom. It was intentionally built so that the king could stand on top of the palace and the king could look over all of Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't so he could be a creepy spy, although we find out in a moment that's exactly what David did. This was for the reason that they looked at the king kind of as a shepherd-type character. Now, they gave the king far more respect than they gave shepherds. Shepherds were thought incredibly lowly of. But the king as shepherd, they thought of with incredible esteem and with incredible value. Because it meant that the king was the caretaker of the people. It meant that the king was responsible for looking over them. It meant that the king would protect the sheep. So this high vantage point, the palace built the way that it is to be over the top, is so that the king can look out over his sheep, out over his people, and can be constant protector over them. But on this particular day... Story tells us that David looked out over his kingdom, and when he did so, he saw something that he liked. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. He saw Bathsheba. Story says he sent men to find out who she was. He found out who she was, even who her husband was. And then he sent men back to get her and bring her to the palace. This was the knock that Bathsheba heard on the door on this incredibly normal day up to this point. And she opened the door to find men, servants of the king. Who had been sent to gather her, to retrieve her, and return her to the palace. Now, perhaps you've heard this story before. Perhaps you've heard this story a million times. And whether you have or not, I'm afraid that sometimes as we read the story, there are some details that we overlook, some things that we don't pay attention to. Even in this, we need to understand that as these men came to get her, this wasn't an invitation. This wasn't a request. 
This was a command. When the king sent for a person, that person came. They had no right to ask any questions. They had no right to wonder what was going on. They simply had to do what the king had asked them to do. So Bathsheba was brought before the king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read this earlier, it tells us he slept with her. Now, Bible language tends to be pretty particular, pretty intentional. And it's important for us to notice that as we read this passage, it doesn't say they slept together. It doesn't say that they had a romantic dinner and in the process they fell in love with one another and then they ended up in bed together and it was unpreventable as all of this great love story was building. It doesn't say that she went in and she threw herself at him. In fact, we get no hint whatsoever at her throwing any form of seduction David's way. The story tells us that David saw her. David wanted her. David took her. Her. He had all the power. He had all the control. He had all the authority in the situation. Bathsheba had no choice. She had no right to opinion. And as we read through the entire story, we find she had no voice. She never has a spoken line in the entire drama. Never does she say anything. The closest to it is she sends a message back to the king. It's two or maybe three words. I'm pregnant. If she didn't use a contraction, it would have been three words and said, I am pregnant. But that's all she gets in the entire passage. Take that away. Billy, you're you're on the jump for me, man. You're moving way too quickly. I know you're moving way too quickly. Stop it. Stop it. Friends, in order for you and I to grasp the weight of this story, the significance of what we're supposed to understand here, of what we're supposed to see, we have to be honest about this situation in ways that maybe we have not been honest before. This is not an extra, an extra marital affair. This is not a relationship forming between the kingdom's most handsome man, the king, admired by all, and this woman or this seductress or this beautiful, lonely woman who is here. This is sexual assault. David took unfair advantage of his power. David forced himself upon her. David violated Bathsheba. She was the victim. Now, sure, there's questions. But did she refuse? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. Was she complicit in what went on? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. Was it an honor of some sort to become a mistress of the king? It doesn't matter. That's not what the story is about. We are not supposed to let David off the hook. It's the reason why none of those excuses are planted in the story. We are not supposed to let David off the hook. We're not supposed to see or wonder or question if Bathsheba was somehow a co-conspirator in this. The story portrays David as the offender, plain and simple. 
follow-up to what has happened thus far. David's attempts to protect himself reiterate his offense. When David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he requested that her husband come back from battle. Now notice, again, this is important. All these things that are there and then sometimes not there in order for us to pick up on the reality of the story. Notice that. Notice how David finds out Bathsheba is pregnant. It's not because they have ongoing conversations with one another and now they've built this relationship. It's not because now all of a sudden they're visiting with one another and he's able to find out that this is going on in one of their conversations. Instead, a month or maybe more later, again, if you have questions, talk to Callie. A month or perhaps more later, Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant. So she sent a message to the king. The message was... Two to three words at best. Billy, now, you're on. Two to three words at best. It says, I'm pregnant. Uriah returned from the field as he'd been requested by the king. David made this request for him to come back appear as if it was an opportunity for him to gain information from the battlefield, a report, what's going on, how are things happening. And then he moved on to make attempts at what looked like honoring Uriah, giving him privilege, giving him opportunity. But because you and I have read the beginning of the story, because we understand what has taken place that no one else would have known about, but because we understand we're supposed to grasp the reality that the plot was thickening. It was getting deeper. It was getting more and more dangerous. Uriah was being used as an unknowing cover-up plan. If he would come back and do what the king was giving him this honor to do, to go home to sleep with his wife, then everyone would have reason to assume the baby was Uriah's. No one would question if it was anyone else's. Obviously, it was Uriah's. He was the husband. She was the wife. And yet Uriah refused to go home. Uriah refused to sleep with his wife. Uriah had too much integrity for that. He wouldn't partake in what his colleagues couldn't and what the other soldiers that were left on the battlefield didn't have a chance to do. He couldn't do. He believed that it was a slight on them. He had to be faithful to his troop. He had to be faithful to his men. He had to be faithful to David, the king, and to David's army. So he refused to take the offer that was placed before him. So David had to come up with another plan A way to remove Uriah from the situation. A way to make sure that things wouldn't come back on the king. A way to protect himself. So David decided to have him killed. Decided that he would send him back to battle. With the instructions for his leader in hand. That they would go to battle. That they would get too close to the enemy. And then that everyone except Uriah was to pull back. Making sure that Uriah was left alone. And Uriah would for sure be killed. Because if Uriah died, everyone would assume the baby was Uriah's. He came home. He was with his wife. There's no reason to assume anything other than this baby belonged to Uriah. And then we find that when Bathsheba finds out that her husband had been killed, that she mourned. And when she finished the process... The procedure of appropriate mourning. The story tells us that David made her his wife. It appears honorable. 
In reality, David is protecting himself. David is making sure that he is safe. David is making sure that his reputation is intact. And notice once again, Bathsheba is given no voice and no choice in this matrimonial decision. David made her one of his wives. This is a hard story. But throughout the story, we find that David forgot something very important. David forgot that there was a palace that stood even higher than his. A palace that could look out over the kingdom and look out over David's palace. David forgot that there was a king that ruled over him. David forgot that he couldn't take advantage of this people. He couldn't abuse this woman. He couldn't have her husband killed. He couldn't abuse his authority. He couldn't inappropriately use the power that had been placed in his hands and get away with it. Because the true king was watching over his people. The true shepherd was watching and protecting his sheep. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, the wrap-up of this portion of the story. Billy, would you pull that up for me? It says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. This is the first time we see God pop up in this story. This is the first time we see the mention of God in this entire interaction. And this line intentionally introduces us into the next chapter. The story of David and Bathsheba continues into the next chapter. This line gives us the ability to move into God's response to what David has done. And in a couple weeks after our service with MCC, we're going to come back and we're going to look at chapter 12. We're going to come back and look at the response. But before we get there, I want us to intentionally sit still, sit here in this bit of the story for a while. I want us to wait uncomfortably in David's poor decision, in his poor behavior. I want us to wait uncomfortably. In David's mistreatment of this woman, I want us to wait uncomfortably in his gross abuse of power. And as we wait, I invite you to see if you can find yourself in David's story. Now looking won't be comfortable. Looking won't be easy. And yet I feel like it's important for us. Important for us to see if we can find ourselves in this story so that you and I can come to terms with the path that we have walked through. So that you and I can make peace of what we've experienced in our life. So that you and I can find the road forward and understand what it is that God is calling us into. In the days ahead. Is it possible. That you find yourself. In the character of Bathsheba. Someone who has been taken advantage of. By another person who was supposed to provide. For you. Someone who's been abused. By another person who was supposed to protect you. Someone who's been hurt. By someone that was supposed to defend you. 
If so, I want you to know some things this morning. I want you to hear loud and clear, God sees you. God loves you. God did not do this to you. The shepherd is looking out over you and will come to rescue you. The shepherd is pained at the behavior of the one who was supposed to provide for you, supposed to protect you, supposed to defend you. God will not allow this offense to go without response. God is on the side of the victim. And even though you may feel alone, you may feel like you've been abandoned, like you're left in this, God is with you and God will return to the scene of the crime. God will bring healing and restoration and justice. Because God is committed to bringing beauty to our suffering. God is passionate about redeeming the terrible decisions of sinful men and women. Maybe it's not Bathsheba, but instead, maybe you see yourself in the character of Uriah. Maybe you feel like you've been tricked into something that you never wanted. Maybe you feel like you've been forced to become the scapegoat. Maybe you feel like you were doing everything that you were supposed to do in your life and yet somehow the rug got pulled out from under you. Everything that you cared about, everything that you loved was stolen from you. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, I want you to know God loves you. God sees you. The great shepherd is looking out over you. He will come to rescue you. God is grieved by your loss and your suffering. Your brokenness crushes the heart of God. This is not what God intended for you. God is watching. God will return to the story. God will bring consequences. And somehow, God will beautifully reconcile the behaviors of the offender. God will make more of this than you or I can imagine possible. Perhaps it's not Bathsheba. And it's not Uriah. Maybe instead you find yourself in the character of David. I have to be honest, I see way more of myself in David's character than I'm comfortable with. Maybe as you think about the story and what it means to be David, you can imagine times in your own life. That you've taken inappropriate advantage of the power that you had over someone else. Maybe as you think about what it's like to be David, you can actually visualize faces. 
faces of individuals whom you have abused or stolen from, whom you have offended or mistreated or broken. Maybe you can imagine and see and remember the multitude of ways in which you treated other people like property instead of treating them as they were created in the image of God. Maybe you can recognize the multitude of ways in which you have inflicted pain or suffering or anger or disappointment in the life of another person. Maybe you can see the ways in which you have displeased God by violating his sheep rather than truly loving them. If so, I want you to know some things this morning. I want you to know that God hates your sin. Whether it's ongoing or it's something that happened decades ago is not the point. It's irrelevant to the story. God is displeased by the behavior. And there will be consequences. But while you hold on to that with one hand, I also want you to know this because I believe this too is clearly spoken in the story, especially as it continues, is that you need to know God loves you deeply. That God is rushing back to the scene of the crime in order to set right what you have broken What you have broken in another person, what you have broken in yourself, what you have broken in God's kingdom, and what you have broken in God's world. God is rushing back because God loves the victim, and God is rushing back because God loves you. Now, God won't let you get away with it. God won't let us get away with these terrible crimes that we have committed on other people. But it's not because his great desire is to bring punishment. It's because the desire of God is to redeem. The desire of God is to save. The desire of God is to rescue. The desire of God is to make things right. So this morning, if you can see yourself in the character of David, what in the world are you supposed to do with it? Let me just real quickly mention four brief things. Well, they're not brief for us to walk through, but I'm going to briefly mention them. What do we do? What do we do with those that we've hurt? First, confess to God. Confess the sin that has been in your life. Confess the mistreatment of other people. Confess the ways in which you have abused inappropriately other people. Second, ask God to bring healing and forgiveness. To forgive us of our sins. To forgive us of the wrong behaviors that we've had. To forgive us of the wrongdoing that we've caused on other on others. To heal the brokenness, 
the brokenness that is in us that somehow allowed us to believe that this behavior was okay, that it was acceptable, that it was appropriate to heal this brokenness, but also to heal the brokenness that we have created or perhaps expanded in another person. Third, run back to Jesus. Turn from the wickedness that has ruled us too long. Turn from our tendency to abuse power. Turn from our mistreatment of others. Turn from our role of attacker or dominator or or possessor or controller. Turn our lives around and surrender our future to Jesus and what Jesus dreams for us in the days ahead. And a fourth one. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to mention this fourth one. I think this fourth one is really, really important, but it has a huge caveat to it. Fourth, only if this can be done without causing more harm to the victim. You hear me? Fourth, only if it can be done without causing more harm to the victim, confess to the one whom you have abused. The one who you broke. Beg for forgiveness. Pray for healing. Again, you got to hear this. Only if it can be done without bringing more harm to them. Sometimes we do things because they make us feel better about ourselves, but they inflict new harm on the person that was already a victim. That's not acceptable. That's not the call of Christ. That's not the move that we need to make. Friends, this morning as we read this painful story, as we think about Bathsheba and what she walked through, as we think about Uriah and the situation that he was unfairly put in, as we think about David and his abuse of power, we have to remember that the great shepherd, the one true king, the almighty God, desires nothing more than to bring healing to the broken. All of the broken. We have to remember that God longs to set right what it is that we have broken. That God longs to bring beauty into suffering. That God longs to bring life into what was once dead. Friends. Wherever you may find yourself in this story, Jesus desires to bring you new life. The choice is yours. Will you pray with me? God, this story in the scriptures is painful. And it's hard for us as individuals, as a body, as a church, to wrestle with the pains that it reveals. The wounds that it opens inside of us. But God, I ask that today 
you would give us the courage to do exactly that. Give us the courage to wrestle with the ways that we have abused others. Give us courage to wrestle with the ways in which we have been abused. And wherever we find ourselves, show us the way back to healing. Show us the way back to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.